24 tonight. Um, so if you'd like to uh, thumb that out, if you're uh, not sure where to find it, open your Bible roughly in the middle, and you should be in Psalms. Good to see you tonight. Um, we were asked um, to choose our own psalms. Um, Gary were, took a very uh, brave move uh, in asking people to, to choose their own uh, psalms. And this one really um, straight away came uh, as one that uh, would be good for us to look at tonight, Psalm 24. It's a remarkable psalm. Uh, it's inspired so many uh, worship songs, uh, many of which we, we sung. Um, it tells us um, some really important things, uh, even though it's only ten verses long. Uh, it, 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 it tells us some really important things about God, about us, uh, and uh, about the, the interaction between us and God. Um, so we're going to start off, um, and we're going to launch into it by having a bit of context. Uh, context is always important. Uh, we need to, to know kind of... Um, what the psalm was about in its original setting, not just as we uh, read it today. Uh, so firstly, um, just to let you know that um, some scholars uh, think that uh, this psalm was originally penned when uh, David uh, um, uh, and the court were bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem for the first time. Okay, um, and bringing it up to and setting it to where they, they, uh, they would conduct worship. Um, not in the temple. The temple didn't exist at that point. That wouldn't come for another generation. Um, which is maybe um, an interesting thing because then this psalm got used over and over again um, as time went by. Uh, during times of kind of um, everyone turning out to worship. Because this psalm is uh, what I would say is a communal psalm. It's a, it's a psalm, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later on, where, um, yes, we can read it as individuals, but uh, there's a wonderful thing about this psalm, because it's, it's designed, it's actually written to be read together. To be read together. Um, and it's powerful for that. It is powerful for that. Uh, and finally, this psalm is what we call uh, a psalm of ascent. Okay? Um, Back, it, back then in, in the old days, uh, they believed that uh, God lived on top of a mountain. Okay, so uh, in Jerusalem, they got Mount Zion. They got a, uh, a raised bit there where the temple was eventually built. And um, it helps us uh, maybe just to remember that the Ark of the Covenant was literally God's throne. So, um, put the Ark on top of the mountain, that's where God's going to be. So it's about ascent. This is about being ready to go up the mountain uh, and meet with God. Um, we might talk a little bit more about why that was so uh, later on. Um, why did they believe or why, why was it helpful for them to believe that God lived on top of a mountain? Okay. Uh, so there's a bit of context. Um, tonight, we're always, being, we're always hearing about everything being a journey, aren't we? You know, we're on a journey, we're on a journey. But we are going to journey through this psalm together. That's why I've asked you to get your Bibles, uh, because we're going to, uh, this psalm is actually split up into sections. 
Okay, probably, I think we're only two verses long, something like that. And we're going to journey through it together uh, tonight. We're going to walk our way through it. Um, that's going to be kind of the approach for tonight, to, to follow the steps. Uh, and hopefully, as we follow the steps, to kind of walk with the people all them thousands of years ago, as they did it too. Uh, maybe to experience or maybe to get a bit of an insight into what uh, was going off. Part of the structure of this psalm is that it's a call and response. You know, Ken, Kendrick didn't think of it. It weren't his idea, it weren't original. Uh, um, David had thought of it so much longer before. Uh, a call and response where the king says something uh, in its original setting, the king would say something and the crowd would respond. Um, I suppose it's a way of keeping them uh, engaged. Uh, anybody? Oh, there we go. Max, Max, uh, Max Boyce? I know, I was there. Yeah? Uh, okay, okay, okay. Oi, oi, oi. It's a call and response. Uh, you'll be pleased to know uh, that's not part of this psalm. Okay. Uh, but that's the idea. Somebody says something and somebody responds. In a way, it's a little bit like um, that dreaded thing, liturgy. Okay? Where somebody kind of starts you off and uh, the people would have known it off by heart and they would have, uh, they would have had pre-worship worship so they'd, they'd know the part of the song. And they will join in uh, with the response. Okay. Um, and understanding that helps us understand the psalm. It helps us to understand the structure and the, and the feel of it. Okay. Now then, uh, we are getting there. This is still the preamble. This psalm, um, I think, it informs us on some key questions. Uh, not every section answers every question. But uh, questions about... Um, some sections will tell us something about God. Okay? Some sections will tell us something about God. Some sections will tell us something about salvation. Okay? Or what we come to know as salvation today. And um, some uh, sections will tell us um, about worship. Will inform us about worship. Or prompt us or challenge us about worship. Are you with me? Oh, that's good. That's good. Okay. So if you've got uh, your Bible open... Psalm 24. I think sometimes it helps. Um, sorry, before we kind of start uh, slicing the beef up, to uh, to kind of look at the whole joint, if you know what I mean. So uh, I'm just going to read it to you the entirety. It's not very long. It's as I say, it's only ten verses long. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will see blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. So keep your Bibles open, if you will. And... Um, we're going to launch into this. 
I think it splits up roughly into about five sections. Um, so, um, section one is looking at verse one and two. And uh, if you kind of to get the... Um, something of the original um, position. If you imagine, um, the king comes out of his palace and he, and he starts to kind of rally the people round. He starts to rally the people round. Um, they come out of their houses, they come to stop doing whatever they're going to do. It's a day of uh, celebration. It's a day where we're going to worship. They're going to go up the mountain and they're going to worship God uh, before the ark. And uh, the priests are going to do their things when they get up there. Uh, but it starts down below. It starts down below. And um, you can almost imagine, um, I like to imagine David walking around and, and, and he shouts, the earth is the Lord and everything's in it. The world and all who live in it. And the people respond by saying, verse 2, for he founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. Now then, if you hate repeating worship songs, I've got some bad news for you. Kendrick didn't think that one up either. Because as David went round, as, as the officials went round, they would repeat this over and over again. The people would reply back over and over again. Uh, and you can almost get the picture of a crowd gathering, gathering and, and uh, the volume rising. Uh, and, uh, so there's King David, that's exactly what he looked like. Uh, and that's a crowd, just in case you've never seen one. And judging by tonight's congregation, you're probably not. So there we go. And this, there's this interaction, this, this interaction between the king and the people. The king and the people. And do you notice, David is maybe doing the talking, but he's drawing no attention to himself. He's drawing attention to God. There he is, dressed in his robe, probably crown on his head, and yet he's saying, remember, all this lot belongs to God. All you lot belong to God. And the people respond in, in, in kind of saying, yeah, we agree. We agree, um, not only... Did, does it all belong to him? Um, he made it. He set it up. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that he's sovereign, hence the crown. And whatever crown David had on his head, it almost um, faded into insignificance with the crown of the people and creation that God has made. He's sovereign is to be um, people to be subject to, people to be, um, have that sense of awe, people having that sense of um, belonging to him, uh, but in being almighty, not almighty, um, in being king, in being king. Do we need to say or tell us about that? I don't think so. Just to say that um, as creator, 
This is not a distant king. This is not like a king who um, lives far away. No, he lives on top of the mountain. Just up there. And as creator, he's been involved. He's been involved with these people. He's been involved with their ancestors. He's been involved with the land in which they live. He's given it to them. So he's not a detached king, even though he is very different from them. He's involved with them. Let's move on to the second section. And I guess this is maybe the, 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 the better, better known, better well known, the most well known, uh, the better known uh, part of the psalm. Verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And I guess that would again be, that would be David's bit. He's posing a question. And the astounding thing is in truth the answer is no one. Access denied. What does it tell us about God? It tells us that he's holy, he's different, he's separate. That no matter how good a person would be God is still higher God is still better God is still bad English more perfect and the people would reply well people who want to go up this hill well we need to have clean hands well what were they meaning were they meaning you just need to have washed your hands Clean hands speaks about holiness. It speaks about our actions being right. It speaks about there being no blood on our hands, no guilt on our hands. It speaks about there being uh, nothing in the way that we've behaved that would bar us from God's presence. And by this time, the people had got a, a very sophisticated, well-mapped-out system of sacrifice that would take away each blemish, take away each mistake. But every time you made another mistake, you were back to the temple again, you were back to uh, sacrificing again having to get rid of that one, and you got your once a year atonement for just everything else that you've forgotten kind of thing. We kind of look at this, and we look back at it, and we look at it through Jesus. The one who gave us clean hands. The one who said, well, you know what? I will be that lamb. I will be the one that will lay myself down to, to make up for, for their shortcomings, for their, what the Bible calls sinfulness. And it's important that we remember that because otherwise we're going to flog ourselves to death trying to get it right all the time. 
We're going to flog ourselves to get death trying to get 10 out of 10 when actually we're doomed not to do that because we're broken. But looking at it through Jesus, the fact that we're being given clean hands, that we're being forgiven by Him, should make a difference. It should mean that, I mean, uh, anybody ever played cricket? Properly, like with whites. Our house used to uh, resemble a Chinese laundry uh, on Monday morning. Um, my dad played cricket a lot. My brother played cricket a lot. Um, so there'd be um, several sets of whites knocking around on the line. And you could see the joy in my mother's face as she was washing and hanging around, knowing that full well come Wednesday, midweek match, they'd be back on again, back out on the field. Come Thursday, they'd need to be back out on the line again to be ready for Saturday. And I can always remember, um, I played a little bit um, when I was at school, and you go out in them gleaming white whites, and they've got them tram lines down from, that your mum spent hours pressing into them, because people would judge you by them, obviously. And you're fielding, and there's that ball that's going, and you think, you know, if I dive, I can stop that ball. I might even catch it. But what's going to happen to my whites? They're going to be greens, aren't they, again? And there's that certain, that moment of choice that says, do I want to get these mucky again? So my mum's got to wash them, she's got to boil them, she's got to iron them, she's got to press them, etc., etc. Or am I going to try and do something different so they don't get dirty? And in a maybe a minute kind of way, that's, that's what being a Christian, that's what it tells us about salvation, this bit of the psalm. That yes, we've been given clean hands and we should want to keep them clean for the sake of the one who gave them to us, for the one who paid for them, for the sake of Jesus. But that's only half the story, isn't it? Because the scripture tells us that it's not just clean hands, it's pure art. You know, if it's difficult to keep your hands clean, it's even harder to keep your heart pure, isn't it? You know, sometimes you can sit on your hands, but deep inside you're thinking, you know what? I could quite happily break several of the commands against you at the moment. Yeah, pure heart. You know, this God sets some pretty high standards, doesn't he? If you want to come and see me, that's great. Just have clean hands and pure heart. That's all. And if you manage to keep your hands clean, well, good luck with your heart. What does it tell us about salvation? It tells us this bit that salvation works from the inside out. 
think it was Spurgeon who said that true religion is heart work. God, by His Spirit, work within our hearts to change us from the inside. What did Jesus say? He said that, well, you know all the stuff that you say that hurts people and half the stuff that you do that hurts people. It sources your heart. That's where it's come from. It's like a bucket that's full to the brim. And when you start moving around, it spills out. What is inside the bucket depends on how nice the outside of the bucket ends up being. What's inside the bucket depends on how much people want, that decides on how, how near people want to get to you. Clean hands and a pure heart. And as the people are saying this, they've moved on from milling round in the marketplace, if you like, and they've started to go up the hill. And they're almost saying, who's qualified to go up this hill? And they're reminding themselves of the, of the, great, liberty, the great freedom that they've got to actually approach God. And as we look at it back through Jesus how much greater the freedom. But not only can we approach God, but he says, come on. Come on, kids, come close. Anybody? Look carefully in your scriptures. just done verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4. What's it say next? Probably off to the right hand side if, you, if your Bible's like mine. There's a little word written in uh, I'm going to say hieroglyphics. That's wrong, isn't it? Uh, italics. Cella or Selah as it's pronounced in more better. That's more Selah that. Um, Sorry, wrong set kind. But what it actually means, there you go, that's the word. What it actually means is, have a pause. Catch your breath. Reflect. It's, it's, when David wrote the psalm, he wrote in a, a pause for the people to actually stop and to kind of think about what they'd just read, what they'd just sung, what they'd just heard. And that's what we're just going to do now. We're just going to stop. Selah. Just stop. Catch your breath. You can imagine them going up the hill and some of them actually wanting to just catch their breath. Reflect where they've got to. Let's move on. Section 3, verses 5 and 6. When uh, 
I was in my previous job. One of the trendy things that came in was um, W2FM. W2FM. W, uh, then uh, Roman numerals to FM. Okay, And what it stood for was, uh, what's in it for me? This section is the what's in it for me, in part. What's in it for the people going up that hill? For the people who have got clean hands, have got pure hearts, who are totally submitted to God, who are totally invested into uh, Him as truth and truthfulness. that they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Saviour. Or the Saviour, to read it in the plural. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. I'm guessing again the king would probably read verse 5 and the people verse 6. Not that it was split up into verses then, obviously. Um, But um, that would be how I would imagine it would roll out. Who would you look for your vindication, for your identity, for, I guess this is what it tells us something else about salvation, isn't it? Who do we look to for our vindication, for our salvation? For the one that says, actually, he belongs to me. Actually, is doing what I've asked. Actually, is being obedient. Just looking at that picture now, it reminds me of uh, um, an event that took, I would like to say it took place once, but it didn't. It took place quite a lot of times. We used to go to the supermarket when I was a kid on Friday night. And I don't know whether it was just uh, that Presto, were, that's what supermarket used to be called, um, was such a wonderful place or what, but you could guarantee almost every Friday night or at least once a month I'd be hanging onto the trolley, being pushed down the aisle, or I'd be hanging onto my mum's hand or my dad's hand, And then suddenly, they look in the trolley and that's not our trolley. Worse still, that's not my dad. And that's not my mum. Somehow I managed to let go and grab hold of somebody else. Now, as kind and as nice and as whatever else that people uh, may have been, no matter how much nicer the stuff in their trolley appeared to be than what were in ours. Didn't belong. Didn't belong. And I'm guessing that when we got to the car park, some, you know, there'd be some issues about, well, you're not coming home with us. I can remember how often 
one of my parents would frantically say, no, it does actually belong to us. It's ours. He's always doing this. Um, But who do we look for for vindication? Do we look for our real parents? For God to vindicate us? To say, yeah, he belongs to me. Or do we grab hold of some other trolley that looks a bit more attractive on, on occasion? move on to section 4 and section 4 lift up your heads O ye gates be lifted up your ancient doors that the king of glory may come in bit of a tricky one this because when this would have been uh, kind of written there would have been no temple maybe there was an entrance into the tent into the, uh, the place where they did worship Do you remember Mark Malado, anybody? Mark Malado used to be a youth worker here many years, many, many years ago. Um, we used to have a, uh, I used to be on his management team, uh, and um, we used to have a, a, a certain occasion, usually at least once a week, uh, where we'd, we'd both uh, enjoy a, a social activity that we, we shared in. And... Um, Usually at some point in the uh, meeting, there will be, oh Mark, uh, just an heads up. Some issue that might have taken place or something that we'd kind of seen during the week that just, you just needed to be aware of. A heads up. And that's what this bit of the, um, the scripture reminded me of. You lift, ask, actually asking the gates to lift their head up. It means to be ready, doesn't it? To have a heads up means to be forewarned and be prepared. Um, We'll come to that in a minute. Be forewarned and be prepared. And what does that tell us about uh, God? Well, it tells us that um, though he is surprising, while he he longs and loves to amaze us, he'd rather not surprise us. Because he'd rather us know him. Think of somebody that you know well. Somebody that you've had a long-term relationship with. How often do you hear him saying when something happens or you do something, I knew you were going to do that. Or I knew you were going to say that. And then the smart answer is you're at a striking distance is you weren't disappointed then. God would rather us know him than him surprise us. What does this bit tell us about God? Well, firstly that, but secondly, we've got to remember that in the Old Testament... The people believed in God as being spatial. He lived on a top of a hill. 
They built him a throne so he could come and sit amongst them. We, we understand God to be omnipresent all over the place. Okay? Um, but before we get carried away and, and kind of mock these outdated, old-fashioned, ignorant beliefs, if you want to call it that, it actually took God becoming limited, becoming spatial, for us to understand enough for salvation to take place. It took God to become one of us. It took God to come in human form, in all its limitedness, in all its fragility, for us to actually be saved. God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Jesus. Get ready, he's coming. He's going to be sat and we're going to be worshipping him. There's an intimacy there, isn't there? Salvation is about intimacy. It's about being allowed into God's presence. There being a way where there was no way. The no entry signs being ripped down. But also it's what does it tell us or challenges about our worship? I wonder how did you get ready for tonight? What was your heads up for tonight? I wonder how often we just pull into church and turn up and hope for the best. Sometimes we don't actually hope for the best either, we just turn up. You know, one of the wonderful blessings about being in a worship band is that you prepare. We've already sung for half an hour, an hour before the main event starts. You've got a heads up. I wonder how much deeper, how much richer our worship would be if we came ready. If we came prepared, with a heads up, with an expectancy, we're going to meet with God. I ask that question. Who is this King of Glory? You know, you, can, you almost get the, the picture, don't you? That the, the crowd has gathered... There's been that gathering process. There's been that ascent up the hill. It's been hard work. It's been, uh, it's been trying. And then they've got to the top of the hill and the, 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 before the ark. And it's almost like saying, you know, who, who is it that we've come to worship? This great king of glory that we've been talking about from right at the bottom of the hill. Who is it that we've come to worship? It's the God who is strong. It's the God who is strong and mighty.
And here's my attempt at inclusivity tonight. It's the God who is mighty in battle. That's Boudicca. Not that she's God, but she was famed for being mighty in battle. And that's the people's response. The drawing from their history. The drawing from um, their heritage. The drawing from their own personal experience. The bearing testimony that this is the King of Glory. The King of Glory. The King who, as a, who looks over them as a people. Not, not David, the one above him. And then, just to make the point clear, David unlines it again by saying, who is this King of Glory? I've asked you once, but I'll ask you again. Who is he? It's the Lord Almighty, the people reply. He is the King of Glory. Look in the margin again. And I believe you'll see it says Selah. Catch your breath. Take a pause. Consider what God has said. Consider what you've read, what you've sung. 